their battles or, or questions about who has the right to or access to land, that question is resolved with the police. It's resolved by saying who has the most guns. And that is the one, whoever, whoever can answer that question in the affirmative is the one who gets the land. Uh, so if there is a landlord and a tenant and the landlord is able to wield the power of the state, then they are going to have access and they're going to have control over the, the housing unit. And the way they're going to do that is because they've got the police and the police are going to force people out. You're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio with me, Naomi Isaac where we interrogate racial narratives in our space, place, and time of so-called Richmond, Virginia, the falling capital of the Confederacy. Evictions and housing insecurity aren't new issues in this country. Since the beginning of European colonization of the Americas, displacement, forced encampment, and enslavement have been critical to sustaining the wealth of a small number of white male settlers. From colonizer and land surveyor George Washington all the way to modern-day real estate moguls like Donald Trump. The foundation of this U.S. occupation has always rested on the practices of extraction and expansionism, building over anyone who dare challenge the corporate elite's gross mismanagement of the land. The call to free the land is not simply about grass, water, or territory. It is a call for reclamation of culture, autonomy, and most importantly, community control. This week on Race Capital, I sit down with Haitian-born Pan-African theorist, organizer, and author of the book, Take Back the Land, Max Rameau. We discuss the links between policing and housing and reflect on how a small community of housing insecure people launched a six-month-long occupation to protest gentrification in Miami. This month, we are also celebrating Black August. And for those who may not know, Black August is a time of self-transformation, study, and action, where we commemorate our fallen freedom fighters, elevate the work of those who still remain captives of the state, and work to resist and dismantle the violence of institutions built on anti-Blackness, including policing and prisons. This year, Jailhouse Lawyer Speaks will be hosting national shut down demonstrations on August 21st and September 9th. You can find more information about these protests on their Instagram at jailhouse underscore lawyers underscore speak. Remember, y'all, study, fast, train, and fight. In the spirit of Black August, we open the show with words from New African prisoner Shaka Shakur, who currently remains captive at Buckingham County Correctional Center. Later, we'll hop into our reframe. Matriarch of the family, his oldest and last remaining alive sister and aunt. 
none of the four funerals were he allowed to attend or a bedside visit. His mother, who was 82 years old, within the last year she has been diagnosed with leukemia and dementia and placed in a medical facility where she can receive where she can receive 24-hour treatment. Again, I am unable to interact or communicate with her on any type of regular or consistent basis. She isn't fit for travel. Shakur, wife, who is 60 plus years old, have health issues and unable to travel due to economic or physiological hardships. It is believed and we know to be facts that Mr. Shakur was moved to the state of Virginia in, a, in an attempt to further isolate him. This is designed to undermine Mr. Shakur after the so-called constitutional right to litigate and have his day in court. Since Mr. Shakur arrived in Virginia, there has been intentional indifference towards fulfilling his contractual obligation with Indiana for his medical treatment, mental health treatment, etc. Hey, Mr. Shakur has been in Virginia for approximately three years, and even today, Virginia still doesn't have his complete medical file and has failed to follow through on chronic care issues or tests that were ordered, such as an MRI and EMG as treatment for spinal and degenerative disc disease, despite being fully documented in the medical file. Virginia Medical has repeatedly refused to issue Mr. Shakur the medical aid, cervical pillow, proper mattresses, etc., that is due him due to his medical condition. Recently, in 2015, I know Mr. Shakur had a major neck and spinal surgery where hardware were installed, and Virginia has been both negligent and indifferent in issuing him the items he needs to lessen the pain and agony of his condition. B. Mr. Shakur, prior to being moved to Virginia, was held in solitary confinement for 13 consecutive years and has repeatedly requested mental health treatment and intervention only to be ridiculed, treated indifferently, not taken seriously or laughed at. No proactiveness measures taken again, negligent and indifferent. See, since my arrival in Virginia, ever since my arrival and transfer from Key Mountain to Buckingham Correctional Center, I've repeatedly been placed in situations designed to promote either physical conversation or military strike. This has been spearheaded by various elements who exist in an official capacity. It is believed that this is in retaliation for my prisoners' rights and political activism, which the Buckingham Correctional Center administration and its supporters has taken to call it Cop Watch. In fact, the officers and guards have promoted such a nickname and actively refer to me as such to all other inmates to classify any activity I engage in, for example, writing a letter, sending an email, using the phone as cop watch activity. While far as I'm concerned, such as a backhand compliment, the administration has manipulated into that of snitch jacketing and thereby placing my safety and security in jeopardy. For all the above reasons, others not stating we are demanding that the contract with any item... You have one minute remaining. ...that Mr. Shakur be returned back to his home state of Indiana as soon as possible. You are listening to the Race Capital Reframe with Kalia Harris, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and Nomi Isaac on the week of August 10th, 2021. Now let's dive right into local news. In the city's latest attempt to clear an encampment of unsheltered people who have few, if any, other options for permanent shelter, Mayor LeVar Stoney and his cronies have announced plan to demolish the Coliseum and redevelop the area. Again, this feels like deja vu. Police posted notices on tents around the arena as workers began erecting a fence that now bars access to the area where at least a dozen people slept on a nightly basis. The notices visible on some tents listed a city code that prohibits people from camping on public property. It said belongings that remain there would be considered abandoned and thrown away. Quote, these people still don't have anywhere to go, end quote, said Rhonda Sneed of Blessing Warriors RVA, 
a faith-based outreach group that has aided people staying there. She said some people were offered short hotel stays, but those would only keep people off the streets temporarily. In a press release, the Stoney administration said it was readying the property for demolition and eventually redevelopment in a preparation for city council vote on a small area plan scheduled for later this year. Y'all, even this fence thing sounds like what they did to the monument for eventual demolition. And also just just clearing out encampments at the Coliseum is a huge contradiction because the only reason there are encampments at the Coliseum is because they keep building Coliseums and, and displacing folks. You know, it's like a giant contradiction. Removing encampments does increase the spread of the virus. And that's a lesson that I thought the city had learned with the demolition of Camp Kathy, but clearly not as here we are. Sounds like LeVar needs to pack it up. Pack it up, LeVar. Mm. Pack it up, LeVar. Well, last month, the Virginia Department of Corrections announced their plan for resuming in-person visits, projecting that family appointments will resume at all of its facilities by early October, after over a year. While public COVID-19 restrictions ended a few months ago, the state's prisons have remained closed to visitors, even those who are fully vaccinated, to the distress of many who are eager to reconnect with their loved ones. Virginia has already resumed visits for official visitors, including attorneys and court, embassy, and consulate officials. As for family members and friends, the state plans to kick off a pilot program to resume those visits on September 1st, but the department hasn't released details about which facilities will be included in the pilot. As of last month, more than 9,000 people incarcerated in Virginia state prisons had tested positive for COVID-19. 56 of whom had died as a result. Data from the Marshall Project published in early July showed Virginia had been slower to ease pandemic restrictions on visits as compared with other states. Well, in other policing news, Richmond police plan to install cameras that capture every license plate that passes in neighborhoods where mostly black and brown populations live or frequent. According to an article written by Allie Rocket, RPD said it plans to install readers in Shaco Bottom where clubs and bars cater to a largely Black clientele at night. Southwood, whose census tract data says the area is 48% Hispanic and 38% Black, and Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority properties, which are largely Black neighborhoods, among other locations. You heard that right. The Richmond police are using federal grant funding from the Department of Justice to purchase license plate readers and accessories needed to connect them to the Virginia State Police's system. Richmond Police Chief Gerald Smith said, quote, the use of technology such as LPRs help to more narrowly focus investigations as opposed to casting a wider net, end quote. According to the police's own data, as of August 4th, homicides were down 9% in RRHA's biggest housing projects compared to the same period last year. 27 people have been shot in RRHA communities, which is down 43% over the last year. The justification continues to be to deter and prevent violent crime though data shows violent crime is not on the rise y'all this is enraging particularly because we have had conversations about these electronic monitoring systems and this is again how technology is continuing to criminalize people and they're setting them up directly in black communities 
I mean, it's in the writing, you know, they say we're going to more narrowly focus investigations. And when they say narrowly focus, they mean directly targeting, right, the most vulnerable communities. And I mean, it's just so evident, like the, the, the just inherent anti-blackness, the inherent anti-poverty in, in this tracking. Ugh, it's disgusting. Gerald Smith need to pack it up, too. He can go with the other Gerald Smiths. <laughs> This is absolutely predictive policing. I want to be really, really clear that this is predictive policing that we've been fighting and talking about for years in Richmond. Yes, and we were just talking about predictive policing with VCUPD and the MOU with RPD, SOMA Global, and all of that predictive policing technology that they already have access to. And so now, in response to a global uprising against policing that went on and continues on in the city, they're getting more technology, more money, more ability to over-surveil the communities that they've already made their target for so long. And it should be distressing to everyone. This is them funding the police. Yeah, and it's not even just a refunding, right? It's a re-strengthening of the police, which is definitely something we all should be concerned with. Something I always say often is just like when you empower a surveillance state, it means that every single one of us is only out on bond. You know, every single one of us has the opportunity to be targeted by technology like this, especially if you are belong to a vulnerable population or, or community. So here in Virginia, General Assembly budget negotiators reached a compromise on Friday on a plan to spend federal COVID stimulus funding that will include a $3,000 one-time bonus this year to, you guessed it, cops, sheriff's deputies, and regional jail and state correctional officers to be exact. The compromise also requires the Department of Motor Vehicles to submit a plan within 30 days for reopening all of its offices to walk-in services within an additional 30 days. So that does sound like something helpful, but they're also giving the cops a bonus. So Chelsea, if I remember correctly, didn't the General Assembly legislators give police some money at the, like during another session this year? That's right, Kalia. So the sheriffs and these correctional officers were not included and in the one-time bonus and raise that was just increased and passed in the spring General Assembly that was about $11 million, I believe, for our budget that came out. So this is additional money on top of that that's coming straight from COVID stimulus funds. I just find this appalling because we do talk to other organizers in other states that have been telling us about their localities giving federal stimulus funding to the police and to see that it's also happening here. And, you know, rather than giving people a direct payment, they're giving the police incentives to continue on with their violence. It's just enraging. And it's no change after 2020. That's the point is that these legislators, local and state are not doing anything different, even after an historic global uprising and locally a long time organizing last summer as any response. We're just it's a continuation of what we've been doing. Is there any stipulations or ideas about what this funding could be used for? It's just they have free rain to use it for whatever you know like that's always just my thing is like how does giving money to the cops do anything to tackle COVID when we know that folks who are incarcerated are more likely to be at risk of contracting COVID so like I just want to know what what is this doing to disrupt COVID to house anybody to feed anyone um and, and like what are the stipulations just surrounding the way that they use the money 
Well, from what I know of the federal funds, they were pretty unrestricted in what states and localities could do with it. And it was a lot of money. And the way that the General Assembly went about it was that the governor um, and the administration basically put out their budget, you know, their proposed budget and senators and representatives could put in amendments to that budget. And, you know, they came to a compromise at the end of the day that everybody unanimously voted on that included lots of stuff like unemployment, but it also included a large chunk of change, again, to the police and corrections officers who are bringing the virus into the facilities. I can tell y'all now, in a single CO still wearing a mask. <laughs> like, no CO is wearing a mask. No one inside a, a jail right now in Virginia is wearing a mask. Very, like, uh, it's just so frustrating and violent, right? It's, like, so inherently violent. And the last thing I'll say on this is that they're talking about morale and keeping people in their positions and attracting more officers, more COs into the jobs. So I really don't see people using these bonuses to go out and buy face shields and masks. You know, that's just not what I see happening with it. So I think it was really just a poor decision. And it's a clear example of why voting our way out is not going to work. Let's be honest, we are literally funding the people that are more than likely resisting the masks, right? Like this is actually going against the people that are helping anything for COVID. So if folks are interested more, please look up the American Recovery Act and understand that this is a huge investment from the federal government. Like Kalia said, that is a lot of unrestricted money that the Virginia General Assembly just voted on how to spend that. You got it pig stimulus package (laughs) well speaking of covid let us go ahead and head into our national news this week and kick it off with our covid watch and y'all it's been a while since we've done covid coverage so i thought we'd start off this week by looking at some national and local trends nationally cases are on the rise in many places they are meeting or exceeding the rates of last summer, and that's despite the vaccine rollout. In some states with low vaccination rates, the cases are at an all-time high, and deaths are steadily increasing. Last week, the United States hit a six-month high for cases, and Florida alone is reporting a higher per capita COVID rate than some small countries. And It's leading the nation for the amount of children hospitalized for COVID under the age of 15. Throughout the country, we are seeing an increase in cases in youth under the age of 12. And most federal employees will be required to get vaccinated or be subjected to mandatory masking, testing, or work-related restrictions like travel. In Virginia, a lot has changed in this past month. We went from averaging fewer than 200 cases per day to more than 1,600 this past Monday. And Governor Northam is taking a similar approach as the federal administration by requiring that state employees provide proof of vaccination or be tested weekly. This includes the Virginia State Police and many other state agencies, as well as faculty at state colleges and universities that are not funded by federal grants. 
Mayor LeVar Stoney did the same with city employees. With schools opening up in just a few weeks and youth cases on the rise in central Virginia, including in places like childcare facilities and summer camps, parents and caretakers are wondering how to keep their young ones safe. The Hopewell School Board began to discuss this problem this week at an emergency school board meeting. According to Kenya Hunter at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Hopewell school system has seen cases mount over 11 days since becoming the first school division in the state to reopen for instruction five days a week this school year. In response to mounting anger from worried parents, the school system decided it will go back to cohorting during recess, meaning groups of students will go to the playground together to control contact, and it will resume temperature checks. The district also plans to expand virtual school, which currently serves about 100 students. The school district is asking families to commit to a choice for the remainder of the semester. So Kalia, we've been hearing a lot about breakthrough infections. What exactly are those? Chelsea, this is a great question. As someone who is vaccinated, I have been extremely interested in what breakthrough infections are and their implications on the spread of the virus. Breakthrough infections are infections among vaccinated people. That's right, folks. Vaccinated people can still get the virus. Due to the increased spread of the Delta variant, gatherings and travel, and being unmasked, we are seeing more and more breakthrough infections occur. The Virginia Department of Health has even added a breakthrough infection bar on their COVID dashboard. We encourage folks to continue wearing a mask or two to be safe, wash your hands, and of course, practice social distancing. Thank you so much for that, Kalia. And it looks like the latest from Kenya Hunter is reporting that the Richmond superintendent, Jason Cameras, is now asking for employees to be vaccinated. So we will continue to watch that. Wow, breaking news. Breaking news right here on Race Capital. Continuing on with national news, last week the CDC issued a 60-day ban on evictions, barring the forced removal of tenants who live in regions with substantial or high COVID-19 transmission rates. This comes as the COVID Delta variant sweeps the nation and housing insecurity continues to increase drastically across the nation. While the moratorium does prevent law enforcement from removing families from their homes, it does not stop landlords from filing eviction requests, nor do anything to address the problem of back rent. A research by a UCLA-led team has determined that the number of COVID-19 cases and the number of deaths from the disease both increased dramatically after states lifted eviction moratoriums that had been in place to protect people who were struggling to make rent payments during the pandemic. The study found that the number of COVID-19 cases doubled and the number of deaths attributable to the disease increased fivefold in the four-month period after eviction moratoriums expired. Those figures suggest that during the summer of 2020, y'all, there were 433,700 more COVID-19 cases and 10,700 more deaths in the U.S. than there would have been if moratoriums had continued lives were literally lost because of evictions. It stuns me to hear that over 10,000 deaths could have easily been prevented just by continuing this moratorium. 
And to hear the CDC say that this is their last eviction moratorium, the last time, and to see what had to happen just to get this moratorium, or whatever we're calling it, because it's kind of a little, not really a full moratorium. It's just concerning. Like, how many more lives are we going to lose just this year off evictions while we give the cops who evict us more money? Yeah, this is as many, you know, housing organizers and and concerned vulnerable communities have said, this is only a ceasefire. And so I think, you know, we really have to keep in mind that the U.S. government is resigned to to literally sacrifice poor folks and, and other people who don't belong to the elite class. And that's something that we have to keep in mind when we're looking at the CDC and trying to make sense of why the actions that they're taking don't make sense. It's because they are not here. They, the government is not interested necessarily in protecting the, the well-being of those who are most impacted by the spread of this disease. <laughs> yeah, as you said, Kalia, just... Uh, very alarming. Um, and, and I hope folks keep an eye out on actions with folks who are seeking to continue to do eviction defense and other ways to keep people housed during this time. All of this just makes me reflect back on 2020 when we think about these deaths and why so many of us were organizing marches near public housing spaces, communities, and not near monuments, because this conversation of evictions, COVID, Black lives, oppression have always been connected to these spaces, particularly here in Richmond. It's also what you get when you have reactive (laughs) solutions instead of proactive solutions. You know, it's not like the fight for housing and the problem of housing insecurity has only arised um, in the face of COVID and the pandemic, right? This has been a problem for many decades and it's been a generations long struggle. Continuing examining the Biden administration's recent political agenda, the U.S. Department of Education recently announced that the student loan payments will remain on hold until January 2022. Quote, the payment pause has been a lifeline that allowed millions of Americans to focus on their families, health, and finances instead of student loans during the national emergency, U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said in a recent press statement. As our nation's economy continues to recover from a deep hole, this final extension will give students and borrowers the time they need to plan for restart and ensure a smooth pathway back to repayment, he continued in a recent news statement. I think that this is really um, (laughs) the part where he talks about, you know, us being allowed to focus on families, health and finances is like something that's not explicitly linked to COVID, right? That's something that people need to do all the time. And I just think it's real interesting that a lot of folks were specifically saying that, you know, we need to go out and vote for Biden because of student loan payments. And look what we got here. Ain't nothing being done about student loan payments. And, and you know, they're still pushing, even with this freeze, you know, they're still hoping that in, in the future, we will be able to continue to make these payments. Um, and, and that means in the future, folks are going to have to sacrifice their families, their health, and their finances, uh, when we know that, you know, this is something that could be erased at any point in time. And as someone who has been getting those emails, right, like, the payments go start in January, like January 2022 is right around the corner. And that's, that's not a long time to save up. For some people, the amount of money that a student loan payment is, as compared to other bills, you know, it's pretty significant. And at Virginia Student Power Network, we have been advocating on the federal level for a complete 
end to student loan debt. And what we've gotten back from the Biden administration is, oh, we're going to help you all with these repayment plans. And that's really disheartening. And I think we, like you're saying, Nomi, like it's as easy as them pressing the button and they need to just go ahead and press it because once January come, I bet people going to be really upset once Sally Mae starts ringing at their doorbell again. I'm clearly already mad. I'm going to be upset. Sally Mae is that one. I'm going to need her to go take a seat because that $25 is not going to be available in 2022. <laughs> I'm still going to be making the minimum amount of payments. Like I'm like just the fact that the nothing has been done. Nothing has been done to rectify the utter economic instability. And they continue to offer these temporary freezes for a problem that we aren't sure is very temporary. Moving into other national news. Thousands of medically vulnerable incarcerated people who are currently serving out their sentences at home will be forced to return to prison as the state of emergency for the pandemic is expected to come to an end, despite the fact that studies show at least 39% of people being held in prisons, jails, and other detention centers have been infected with COVID as of now. According to the Equal Justice Initiative, incarcerated people are five times more likely to contract the coronavirus. Since the start of the pandemic, nearly 700,000 incarcerated folks have contracted COVID and 3,000 have died from the virus. It's still unclear when the state of emergency will officially end, but when it does, almost 5,000 incarcerated folks will be forced to return to these dangerous conditions. This is just ridiculous that people were let go, have started their lives again with their families or in their community, and now they're being forced to go back to federal prison where, like you're saying, the rates are so high. And clearly they're not getting visitation either, as we heard earlier. It's really, really just, what is the point of this incarceration system except suffering? Also just poses, you know, the potential to be a super spreader situation. Because how do you have folks coming, probably from very vulnerable communities, once again, where the the likelihood of contracting COVID is already high and then placing them back into an institution where it's definitely more likely that they'll get COVID. You know, it just, it doesn't make sense in terms of mitigating uh, the virus, but we also know that, you know, they aren't uh, interested in that. In Arizona, the Phoenix Police Department has become the third police department to be subjected to a civil investigation during Biden's term. According to the DOJ, The U.S. Justice Department has launched an investigation into whether police in Phoenix have unlawfully used deadly force, lashed out against peaceful protesters, and impeded the rights of houseless community members. This comes after news broke back in February that a group of Phoenix police officers had celebrated the shooting of a protester. Sounds familiar. How many studies are we going to do? How much money are we going to funnel into the Department of Justice for them to conduct studies that produce results that we already know. It feels like money money laundering for the police. You know what I'm saying? Anyone remember the Richmond police pens that they made from gassing folks at the monument? That kind of celebration? Yep. Well, lastly, in national news, last Thursday, the United States began flying Central American and Mexican families to Southern Mexico in an effort to quote, deter migration, end quote, by bolstering a COVID-era expulsion protocol at the U.S.-Mexico border under a border policy known as Title 42. 
Biden has reversed many Trump-era immigration policies, but Title 42 remains in place despite 20-year highs in border arrests. According to Reuters, nearly 200 Mexican and Central American family members were expelled deep into Mexico beginning last week. Health experts, pro-migrant advocates, and even some Democrats say that this policy cuts off access to asylum without a clear health rationale. But the Biden administration continues to argue that this policy is necessary to keep U.S. detention centers from becoming overwhelmed during the pandemic. Y'all want to know a great way to keep U.S. detention centers from becoming overwhelmed? Maybe shutting them down. Mm. The incarceration system just is continuing to feed itself in our country. And I think now more than ever, this local and national news is telling me uh, that we need to be organizing both inside and outside with our comrades. Well, lastly, we'll go into international news in Sudan, where six officers of the RSF, or Rapid Support Forces, have been found guilty and sentenced to death following an investigation that found the paramilitary group responsible for the 2019 killings of six student activists who were protesting declining economic conditions in Sudan. This is not the first time that the RSF has been cited for waging violence against students and other civilian activists, with reports of murder and sexual assault remaining widespread. Just this past March, the RSF was found exposed for unlawfully detaining dozens of protesters in Khartoum. We stand in solidarity with those rising up against state-sanctioned violence everywhere. Look, all skin folk ain't kinfolk, and some of these skin folk be cooperating with the USA and CIA to destabilize Africa. So definitely solidarity to all the students continuing to push for a more civilian-based uh, form of government. Well, y'all, that is our Race Capital reframe, you know, the award-winning Race Capital. Thanks to everyone who voted for us in the Richmond Magazine as the best local podcast. We do have a Patreon. It exists. And you can go there and even decide to give money if you so choose. Well, y'all, we're going to hop into that Black August energy by talking with author and housing and anti-policing organizer Max Rameau. He has written the book Take Back the Land, Land Gentrification in the Emoja Village Shantytown. Let's get into it. And thanks for listening to Race Capital right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Haiti and was raised in the United States. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Uh, and my organization is Pan-African Community Action, which is based in DC. Uh, and we're an organization that's fighting for power for working class black communities with a emphasis or focus on uh, black women and LGBTQ folks.
Thanks, Max. So how about before we start with talking about Black August and housing, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to go into your particular political consciousness? So I'm not sure exactly how I came into my political consciousness. I was, as I mentioned, born in Haiti and I used to spend my summers there and my family is relatively well off in Haiti, although um, uh, certainly not as as well off in the United States. Uh, But I think probably uh, a contributing factor was going back and forth between the United States and Haiti and seeing the difference in quality of life for most people uh, who was so much lower in Haiti than it is in the United States and trying to kind of grasp and grapple with that. Uh, and also trying to figure out why um, my quality of life was uh, was relatively good compared to so many people in Haiti. And then as my exposure to the world expanded, then I recognized there were also people in the United States who were not living too hot and a disproportionate number of them were black. And I think I slowly came upon that realization and I think that uh, contributed to my political development. Um, so I don't know exactly I don't really have in the same way that many others do an, an aha moment where things just sort of either made sense to me or, or suddenly something was brought to, to, to life. Uh, but I think that since I was very young, uh, I was interested in uh, the idea that everyone should have some basic uh, minimums met. And I wanted, uh, that's the way I wanted life to be. And then I think as I got older, I just started to think about ways in which I can contribute to that. Uh, to that happening. So I was politicized really in probably as early as middle school. So, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, where I you know, started to pay a lot of attention to the political world uh, around me for one reason or another, uh, but then became much more um, radical in my political thinking starting in college where, my, uh, where I attended University of Maryland and my introduction to the, to the broader world, broader world of political thought uh, began. And I was introduced to the theories and work of Malcolm X, and I was intent on disproving a bunch of what Malcolm X was saying, and I found myself unable to do so. Like, whatever I would look up, it would just confirm these ideas that I was so angry at, uh, that I disagreed with so vehemently, and I suddenly realized at some point that what my disagreements with, with uh, the extent to which I have disagreed with Malcolm X, they're emotional, they're not based on science or on reason. And I needed to then align, get closer aligned with what I actually thought, not just with what I felt. Because political, advancing political objectives and improving the lives of people really is going to be based on science, not based on emotion. Thank you for sharing that. I definitely like, first off, just see some similarities. You know, my family is from Trinidad um, and St. Croix. And I think like having seen kind of my parents raise up to be in this like middle class situation and then need to go back and visit family and you just, you know, you wonder like what's going on. Yeah. I hear my relatives who lived on the island still talking about like how they hate the Yankees and like wondering why, how could they hate the Yankees if we're the Yankees? You know, so I definitely see some like connections <laughs> in, um, in those like two stories. Can you tell me about how, like, from college and moving forward, you started to get involved into housing organizing? I, it wasn't a straight line, that's for sure. I think I just, uh, I, I was raised and all through that time in the early parts of college, I was in the D.C. area. And then because of a series of family situations, uh, ended up moving to Miami, Florida. And in Miami, you know, I continued to engage in more radical political thought, uh, but also then started for the first time some real on the ground organizing there. 
And I think that is something that made a big shift. And the intention was not to go into issues like housing, but was actually to engage wherever there were issues impacting the Black community. And one of the big movements for me was uh, when I was at, uh, after I left DC and went to Miami, I became a student at Florida International University in Miami. And uh, because of my work there, I was able to bring speakers to come and speak at the, at the college, at the university. And uh, we brought Kwame Ture, who was formerly known as Sophie Carmichael, the first one who said Black Power. And you know, I'd been reading his work and, and been very interested. And I saw him speak once at University of Maryland. And that, again, really moved the needle for me. Uh, so I was able to bring him down and able to get a lot of personal time with him. And I joined for a short period of time the All African People's Revolutionary Party, which was his organization. I think that then started giving me some of the tools with which to both think radically in a structured way but then also think about solutions to radical, not just have radical theory, but then what are radical solutions to the problems that exist for, for African people, uh, for people of African descent living in the US or living in Haiti or wherever we were living. I think that's really where the, the combination came. And so most of the work that I did in Miami for years around the, the organizing work were really in two areas. One was economic development. Uh, and then the second was police brutality. And I really had a lot of passion for working police brutality. And to this day, to the extent that I'm known in Miami, it's more for the police brutality work, anti-police brutality work than it is for, uh, you know, what many people call housing work, but take back the land type work. Because it did it for so much longer. And there was a time at which there was only a small group of people willing to say things about the police, which at the time, the city of Miami police were one of the most brutal in the United States by far. You were talking about the late 90s, all the way to the early 2000s. So we were one of the few groups, a group that I was with called Brothers of the Same Mind and the Coalition Against Police Brutality and Harassment. Uh, and we were one of the few groups who were willing to say something every time there was an instance of police shooting or even uh, uh, something short of a shooting, uh, you know, beating people up, false arrests, things like that. So we were really dealing with whatever situation came up uh, with the Black community. And then at that time, in the late 1990s, we started recognizing some trends uh, and the big, one of the big trends that we saw there was that because of climate change and because of, of migration patterns, South Florida was getting full of people. And the government, um, the, the county government, there's a planning office, which is a little gem actually, in, in they, they do some really good work and it goes very unnoticed. And I think that's one of the reasons why. And I think the more noticed they are, the less able they're gonna be able to do good work. But anyway, the planning department for the county put out a report saying, look, the water tables in South Florida, the the water that's used from which uh, human beings drink, so not the seawater, but like the waters in the Everglades, are reducing and the number of people are increasing. So if you continue to dredge the water, you know, to take the water out of the Everglades, which is where the drinking water, some of the drinking water comes from, if you continue to do that and more people come, you're going to have less water and more people. Like this is a disaster. So there has to be an end to building out west, continuing west and uh, even to some extent north. Uh, uh, and instead what has to happen is people have to uh, build inward, have to do infill housing. Miami is a very spread out city, uh, has a lot of low slung buildings, at least at the time. Uh, and this report basically said, look, the city uh, and the area has to start building high rise buildings and move east. Uh, and they created this this saying that called Eastward Ho instead of Westward Ho, as they did back in the when they were stealing land from the uh, indigenous people here. And we recognize that first of all, we recognize the ecological soundness of that argument, first off. But then we recognize that that's just ecological soundness and science. But then that was on one part. 
But then the other one is that there was a lot of social engineering that they were planning. And they were basically saying, here are the neighborhoods where building has to increase and the population has to increase. And they were almost universally black communities. They weren't saying you're gonna have to build high rises and build a house in between two houses in wealthy white neighborhoods. They were saying you have to do that in low income black neighborhoods. So we recognized that this was gonna be another attempt to move people out of their longtime neighborhoods. And I had some comrades at the time who remembered being moved out of their historic homes in Overtown when the highway, when I-95 was being built and, and these other highways were being built so that communities were split uh, and black communities were, were, were split apart. So we recognized this was gonna be displayed. We didn't have a name for it yet. We didn't know what it was called. And it would take a year or so before we we uncovered the name gentrification, the word gentrification. But we recognized that this was going to be a major problem. We were going to be forced out of historically black communities. And I think that's how uh, I started that kind of work in South Florida. And this would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s as well. Um, uh, and it's, I think that's the way that we started thinking about these questions. But to answer your question in another way, uh, while in the initial phases, in some ways we talked about it and thought about it in terms of housing. Ultimately, we understood some of the political theory that we were engaged in that made it clear that the real issue at stake was not housing. The real issue at stake was land. And one of the worst ways to address the housing crisis is to think about housing. The way you have to address the housing crisis is to think about land and land relationships. The problem with, with, with housing and housing availability and affordability is not housing and do you build more, do you build less? It's what are individual and corporate relationships to land? Who's able to buy? Who's able to sell? What are the terms under which buying and sell? What is a right versus what is a commodity? And those were the real questions we had to answer. So we couldn't answer those questions. There's enough physical structures in South Florida to house everyone. But because of our relationships to land, the society's relationships to land, people who needed uh, access to those structures could not get them or certainly couldn't get them at a rate that they could afford. And that was really the, the ultimately became the problem there. So what many people call housing, we actually thought about and understood as land struggle, as uh, we needed to engage in, in land reform, not in housing work. Uh, and that's the kind of work that we end up taking on with groups like Take Back the Land. And I appreciate you really making those connections between how always when we're organizing for housing, it immediately and inherently becomes a police issue, especially when we're talking about gentrification. It's basically manifest destiny and manifest destiny would not have come to fruition without mass displacement. Can you explain just the importance of what we're talking about when we're saying free the land and we're talking about land struggles? Can you talk about the role that housing and land autonomy and sovereignty, what role does that play in winning liberation for African? people and other oppressed people. Also, how that inaccessibility to land and housing benefits the prison industrial complex. Yeah, so I appreciate that. I think those are all uh, great questions. There's many, uh, many things. Of course, the, the just to hit one and connecting both to your last question on the prison industrial complex and your first comment on the, on the police, uh, there are battles or, or questions about who has the right to or access to land that question is resolved with the police. It's resolved by saying who has the most guns. And that is the one, whoever, whoever can answer that question in the affirmative is the one who gets the land. Uh, so if there is a landlord and a tenant and the landlord is able to wield the power of the state, then they are gonna have access and they're gonna have control over the, the housing unit. And the way they're gonna do that is because they've got the police and the police are gonna force people out. So there is a relationship there in that, in that you have some people who have way more land than they could possibly use. Sometimes they've never even visited it and they're making all this money off of it. 
and they can kick people out of it. And they can kick people out of it, not because they're going down themselves and they're breaking bad and they're kicking people out of it. They're doing it because they've got a state apparatus that has a lot of guns and room in jail cells and and get arrested. The reason people are getting evicted and are leaving sometimes voluntarily before, not not entirely voluntarily, but leaving before the police get there uh, is because they know that if they don't leave, they will get arrested and they will be looking inside of the, the walls of a jail cell. Uh, so there is a real strong relationship between the prison industrial complex and, and its size and knowing that it, how many people it can consume uh, and the fact that people have housing insecurity because people know that they have to choose between police brutality and ultimately prison and having a place to live. I think as a Pan-Africanist, we think about land constantly, the, but specifically the landmass of Africa and how it should be, how it's divided up and split up and and people are forced on or off land uh, have been historically due to colonialism. So the way we're gonna solve those problems that are happening on the continent as well as elsewhere is by then taking control of that land. But the idea of land and land control then also applies in other colonial contexts, except for colonialism in in the United States. We still need to have control over land in order to have to control over uh, some of the other uh, issues uh, that are impacting uh, that are impacting our lives. So even here in the United States, when we think about the cycles that we've had of segregation and gentrification, it underscores the importance of land. Right. So in during segregation, which of course was this period where saying black could only live in one area and not in in another, and they were, we were told that by uh, the larger and more powerful white community. There was a series of laws, Jim Crow segregation laws, that said we can only live in this section of town, this neighborhood. We can't live outside of these. We can't cross the street or this avenue uh, after uh, dark, things like that. So that was segregation where it said you can only live in this area. You can't live anywhere else. Uh, And then we built then an entire movement just to end the laws of segregation. The civil rights movement was entirely built to end these laws that said, you can't live here or you have to only live there. You can't sit where you on the bus, right? But then what happens after segregation is over? Now we're going through a massive wave and now a more than a decade long wave of where they're saying, okay, we know we forced you to move there, but now we think this land is valuable. So we need you off of there so we can take up that space. And that is what we call gentrification where we're being forced off. Objectively, we're arguing there is no difference between someone saying you have to live in this corner and someone saying, get up off of that corner. Now I want to sit there. In either case, we have no control over where we sit, where we live, where we worship, where we uh, play, where we go to school, uh, uh, et cetera. So the real issue then, even though we, we think about and we talk about the terms of segregation and we think about and talk about the terms of gentrification, the real issue is not segregation. The real issue is not gentrification. The real issue is land and who controls it because you can't be gentrified off of or segregated into land that you control, right? So when you control the land, then you can determine who lives there and what the standards of living uh, are, et cetera. Having control over land resolves the problem of segregation because people can't move you off of your land and resolves the problem of gentrification because they can't move you off of your land. So the real issue for us, even though we have to deal with the manifestations of the problems of bad land relationships, uh, uh, such as gentrification and segregation, the real issue for us is clear, and that is land and con- collective control over land. Which then brings us to the next point uh, of then what land relationships are in the society in general, even aside from the racial component. So right now in the society, housing in particular, as a function of land, you have many functions of land. One function of land could be 
farming. One function of land could be recreation, parks, et cetera. One function of land could be collective use, like governments, uh, things like that. Uh, another function of land is housing. So housing in the society actually serves two purposes simultaneously. One is it's a place for people to live, the shelter that people need in order to survive and even to thrive. The second function it serves is as an investment where people think they can invest some money today and make more money back tomorrow. Those two objectives of land, housing human beings and making a profit, conflict with one another. Not only do they conflict with one another, at some point as those conflicts continue to spiral, they will actually be in direct contradiction with each other. Meaning that you can't both say that everyone has the right to housing and that the people who own the housing have a right to make a profit because they can't make a profit if everyone has housing and everyone can't house and have housing if people are allowed to make profit off housing. So we have a real clash over what is the fundamental role of housing in the society. Is it to provide shelter for human beings or is it to make a profit? And what we assert is that the right of human beings to housing supersedes the right of corporations and individuals to make a profit. Uh, and we have to resolve that contradiction. We have to resolve that use of land uh, contradiction uh, before we can resolve anything. This society could build a billion more housing units if the fundamental relationship of land is exactly the same, meaning that uh, some billionaire can own all of those 10 billion housing units, then you might as well not build any. There's no difference. Between it. We need to resolve the underlying uh, issue. Uh, and that is that housing must be a human right and housing must be completely decommodified so no one can make a profit off of it. Yeah. And I know you and some of your comrades, like you said, down in Miami had a, you know, a lot of experiences with trying to confront this contradiction. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Take Back the Land movement in Emoja Village? What were some of the obstacles? Who were some of the obstacles? Give us the tea. <laughs> so around 2006, the uh, crisis of gentrification that it, it was a national wave was really hitting its apex with all of the uh, mortgage stuff that was going on where mortgages were really, really easy to get and the housing prices were increasing significantly. This was a time from 2002 to 2006 that, that housing prices were increasing significantly. And that meant that we we're being forced out of our historic uh, neighborhoods. And we recognize that this would be a uh, an ongoing problem. And, and it is, of course. And that meant that poor people were being were being left out. Uh, and poor black people in particular. So there was one neighborhood in particular, Liberty City, which is where I lived in uh, in Miami. It's a section of Miami. And in that section, there was a vacant lot. And in that vacant lot, there used to be an apartment complex. And I was familiar with that apartment complex because we took on a campaign there where the, there were slum conditions in that apartment complex. We went into the apartment complex to look around at the conditions and um, you know walked into uh, this woman's uh, bathroom and, you know, it was small. It wasn't completely up to date, but I was like, okay, this is not horrific. So what do you, you know, what, you know, what's the issue? And then behind the toilet, she had a towel hanging and she said, hold on a second. And she moved the towel and behind the towel was her neighbor in their bathroom across the, oh. <laughs> yes, there was a gigantic hole 
separating the vessel when two people were using in two different apartments using the toilet at the same time they could hear each other they could smell each other they could it was i mean the conditions were terrible so we built the, built this campaign and then we what the city was ignoring because it was a politically connected developer the city was ignoring all the complaints so we went to the city as a uh, organized force to the city and demanded that they intervene on behalf of the residents so they went and they investigated and immediately condemned the building and everyone there was made homeless within 24 hours and it was a devastating loss for us uh, and then they they the city purchased the apartment complex from the slumlord so the slumlord made a profit and then they demolished the building the lot had been vacant ever since so that lot the city of miami put out to, to bid, they would sell it for $1 to any developer who had enough cash on hand to build a new condo immediately. Like basically it would be shovel ready, would be able to start building within 30 days. Uh, and this was bad because it would continue to raise the prices in Liberty City. Uh, it would it would eliminate, even to the extent that people wanted a black developer, which wouldn't solve the fundamental problem, even to the extent that people wanted a black developer, they knew they couldn't get it because no black developer had millions of dollars sitting in their bank account waiting to spend on this thing. It would just exacerbate all of the existing problems. So what we did then was we uh, organized our community and we seized control over that vacant lot before they were able to finish the bidding process. Then created there a shanty town. We built shacks made out of wooden pallets and we housed 50 otherwise homeless individuals there on that. And you know this was in 2000, this was, would be in October, 2006. Uh, a few years later, then Occupy came with, you know, call this kind of work occupying land. We never thought of it as occupying land because we're anti-colonialists and we think of that word as like disgusting, you know, the thinking that we're occupying something. Uh, so we called it liberating land and we liberated that land and we allowed that land then, we freed it to be used for what it was supposed to be used for and that was to house people. It wasn't in great conditions, but it was a condition that they found dignifying. And on that land, which we called the Emoja Village Shantytown, which stood from um, October 2006 until uh, April 2007, the residents of, of, uh, of the Emoja Village built their own shanties. Uh, they lived there. They voted every week on what new rules to uh, make, what rules to enforce, what rules to drop, uh, when to build more, when to stop building, where to build, how to deal with... Um, uh, with donations that came in, just made a whole series of decisions on their own. So this is an incredible experiment we found on self-determination uh, that was done overwhelmingly by otherwise homeless uh, Black people. Uh, it was an amazing experience. It was amazing viewing and embracing the humanity of people whose humanity have been cast aside for long periods of time. That is incredible. And um, yeah, like really yeah. almost establishing a maroon of society, Marine Village, where yes, like all these people that facing. Is, that is a very, very accurate way of putting it. I mean, it was a little different in the sense that Maroon societies generally had a kind of like easy, uneasy alliance with the plantations with like, okay, we won't, you don't attack us and we won't attack you and we'll poach your thing. We felt the opposite of that is even though we're a Maroon society in the sense that we followed our own rules, we did want to interfere with their ability to, with the state's ability to uh, oppress people and to you know, we put out our own propaganda and we, you know, so we were very interested in disrupting uh, the society outside of, uh, of our borders. But, but I think we did uh, face a number of obstacles. There were many businesses that wanted to take over that uh, real estate interest. 
interest that wanted to take over that land and build condos there. Uh, right across the street from us, across a small street, were two new houses that were being built. The developers of those houses were really angry because they couldn't sell the houses. The houses were completed while we were there, while the Emotion Village stood, and they couldn't sell them. People would come and visit and they'd be like, we're not living across the street from this. And so we, like at a time when housing prices were zooming, the housing prices in that area, in a maybe two or three block area, were going down. We're making it more affordable and they couldn't even sell those houses. They ultimately had to, the, the developer had to rent them because nobody would be willing to buy them, even as they dropped the price almost to, the you know, what we understand was close to their cost. So uh, we were having that impact. And of course, the city was incredibly embarrassed by the, uh, the action. And so constantly we're, tr we're trying to undermine us and our existence there. So we were fighting on these multiple, uh, multiple fronts, but we were able to hold together for long periods of time uh, before, you know, really the city. Uh, burnt the village down. Burned the village down. Burned, burned the village to the ground. They sure did. That's how the that's how the Amoja village shanty town ended. So we uh, we were there. We became an institution. Like uh, we were on the news on a regular uh, on a regular basis. People came and volunteered there. People came and gave donations. College students came and toured, and the residents would lead them on tours and answer questions and challenge the college students thinking about uh, the role of housing and role of land. Uh, so this was, this became a real uh, institution. And, in, and we recognize ourselves as an institution. We realized that we turned a corner when there was a street level crime that happened in the neighborhood. There was a stabbing that happened two blocks away and the local newspaper reported it and said there was a stabbing on such street and such avenue two blocks away from the Emoja Village. And that's all they said. They didn't have to explain who we were. It's just like they would say two blocks away from the library or two blocks away from this high school. Uh, we've been so well known and recognized that they could just refer to us as if we were a standalone building, as if we were an institution. And I think that's when we realized, wait a minute, we, we actually have something here that is really well recognized and really established and they can't just come and, 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 and tear it down. And in spite of all their efforts to, to do the same, they, they were not able to pull people apart. So one of the things they did, for example, is they sent homeless services there to try to uh, get people to leave. And once, once the, the population left, we would no longer be so like if they would have got all the residents to leave and it would just been organizers and activists, they could have shut the whole place down easily. But when they would go and get the residents, sometimes some would go. We had a case of people who were in really bad health. Uh, they would go, but but few few others would go, and we would they would come in with this massive sweep, and they'd bring food, and they would leave with one person out of fifty. Um, uh, and then it was one exchange I remember in particular where they came, and they the the workers weren't even you know coming out with honey; they were coming out with vinegar. They were saying, you know, we won't you come with us? We got uh, air conditioning and uh, cooked food. Y'all don't even got air conditioning over here. And one of the residents was, replied, "We would rather live in dignity than live in air conditioning." and you don't provide us with, with, with dignity. So they tried to, to undermine everything. At some point, we were so well protected politically by the neighbors, the neighbors expressed. When, when, when it seemed like they were going to raid us, we held a press conference there on the land and neighbors came out, churches came out, uh, organizations came out and all pledged that they'd be willing to come and take arrests rather than have the village uh, raided and tore down. And at that point, the city changed its tune and started playing nice with us. And uh, you know, claiming all that they wanted to help and support, and that they would allow us to stay, and we just needed to 
to do this, that, and the other thing. And we didn't want to engage them at all. We felt that they were part of the problem and, and all that, but we were also happy not to constantly be under the, under the fire. So we came up, again, we started in October. In April, we were reaching uh, our six-month anniversary. So we had a six-month anniversary celebration. Uh, hundreds of people came out. It was on the news. It was a really nice event, but there we announced two things. One is we were going to tear down the shanties that were there and we we're going to build new ones in their place that would be more resilient, make more sense for the weather. We we're going to build actually hexiurts, uh, which is a, a design structure which would make more sense, but also build them out of material uh, that would be fireproof. These, of course, all the uh, shanties were made out of wood. And there was just a bunch of reasons why we wanted to upgrade things. So that was one announcement that we we're weren't going to build permanent structures, but we we're going to build better structures uh, and the second thing we're going to do is we're going to take over more land. We were we were thinking about other areas. We have had requests, and we're going to take over more land. We announced then that in three days we are going to rebuild the first one. We had a little very small model of the of a what the hexiert was, and we're going to rebuild in three days. And then uh, inside of the month, then towards the end of April, inside of uh, May, inside the next month, we were going to take over more land, and we're going to build the second shanty town. Uh, the third day, uh, and this was, again, it was all over the news. We had hundreds of people there. We got a lot of donations because the materials were going to cost more. So we were suddenly flooded with donations so that we could pay for the materials and rebuild the, the place. Uh, and we we're going to, again, start building on the third day. The third day at midnight, the entire village burned to the ground. The entire village was engulfed by a fire and burned to the ground. Uh, and it was started by a resident who was the only resident who disappeared and was later found living in Mine Beach, in, a, uh, in an apartment in Mine Beach, driving a, a car. This person was living, I'm not saying this in a, in a way of being uh, diminishing him, but uh, when he was found to be living in Miami Beach a couple weeks after, so two weeks before, he was literally living in a shack as a person who was otherwise homeless, and then in two weeks' time, was driving a car and living in an apartment in Miami Beach. So all kinds of suspicious things that, that happened. Um, and then he seemingly con uh, confessed uh, to doing so in a number of occasions. But the city then could not, knew that they couldn't uh, come in and cause political divisions, and knew that if they tried to raid us, that they would be stopped by uh, uh, by neighbors, uh, and so found the fire as the only way to sow enough confusion uh, that they could uh, could ultimately uh, fence off the area. Where it remains today, more than 10 years later, the property is still fenced off. Uh, and nothing has been built there. Can you talk to me just about, you know, uh, the big thing right now is housing with the pandemic. You know, everyone's uncertain about what's going to happen with housing. Uh, a lot of people are housing insecure. Um, what are your thoughts on the federal eviction moratorium and uh, just the Biden administration's agenda so far and how it factors kind of into, you know, these issues that we're talking about in terms of policing and mm -hmm. housing? So this actually ties directly into what we did next, what Take Back the Land did next after the Emoja Village. After the Emoja Village fell, uh, you know, we spent some months discussing what we should do next. And that's when we recognize a pattern that instead of houses just being flipped in our neighborhood, the houses were vacant, like people were emptying out because the, the prices had gone up so much and the mortgage rates were going up and the conditions of mortgages were, uh, were so onerous for people who couldn't afford it that foreclosures were beginning and the foreclosures were happening and the 
the houses were, were empty. And then we decided uh, after that, then we were not going to take over another vacant piece of land. We were going to start moving people into these homes. Like, why are we going to build a, a shanty so we can move people into a house, a full house that no one's living in and that the, the, the banks that own them are getting bailout in order to keep empty? So we started then the process of identifying vacant government owned foreclosed homes, breaking into them and then moving families in and then launching eviction defenses uh, uh, afterwards. Uh, uh, so we did, and, and what we talked about during that time was that uh, this was during the crash that was happening in 2008, 2009. So during this crash, uh, uh, and some people remember that even uh, Obama and uh, McCain, who were both running for president, stopped their campaign so that they could uh, you know, try to address this, uh, uh, this crisis that was happening with these foreclosures and people getting evicted and, and all that stuff. So all this stuff was was was, um, uh, was going on, and people were struggling with it. How do we deal with this? How do we find housing for everyone? And for us, it was very simple. There are people who need uh, housing, and there are houses that need people. So we just move the people who need housing into the housing that need people, and that would for us solve the problem. Then we'd launch eviction defenses in order to uh, do that. Uh, and what we argued was that housing is a fundamental human right and that the laws, policies, and rules should be built around that right, not the other way around. I feel the same way about the eviction moratorium. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that we're against the eviction moratorium, but the eviction moratorium in many ways is besides the point. If you don't have a right to housing, then getting a temporary eviction moratorium, the definition of moratorium is that it's temporary. It's a temporary stop. And for us, we don't want something that's temporary. We want something that's permanent. We want the human right to housing. We want the decommodification of land. So eviction moratorium or not, even if we, if we don't have it, then we have to confront this issue sooner rather than later. But even with the moratorium, we're just kicking the can down the road. If you have a moratorium, uh, if there is a moratorium and you have no job, it doesn't give you long-term housing security. Uh, it still means that you don't have housing security. It's just a question of when. The eviction moratorium is eventually going to run out. Uh, and, and at some point, people are going to be tired of fighting for it, just like now people are still not fighting for, uh, are no longer fighting against the foreclosure crisis. At some point, it's no longer going to be seen an emergency. People are not going to fight about it, and it's going to expire. The real question is, what are we doing about the right to housing? Not on a technicality that there's a moratorium, not on a technicality that you can't kick someone out because it's under a certain amount of degrees outside, it's freezing outside, or not on a technicality that you can't kick someone out during a pandemic. What happens when the pandemic is over? We want to fight for the human right to housing under all conditions, under all economic times, and for every single human being. So we don't want to fight for an eviction moratorium. We want to fight for the human right to housing. We want to fight for the decommodification of land. The eviction moratorium is completely and totally besides the point, even though as a short-term gap measure it may be needed right now, we need to be thinking bigger and broader than a short-term gap measure. If people are willing to fight right now for a moratorium, this is the time, this is the opportunity for us to fight, to convince people, for us as organizers to convince people and to build a movement, not around continuing a temporary moratorium, but around instituting a permanent human right to housing. That's what we should be fighting for right now, not fighting for a moratorium on evictions. The evictions themselves should be illegal. And, you know, while all this housing nonsense uh, and political theater is going on, we also have on the other side, the Biden administration uh, breaking their 
promises or I guess keeping their promises that nothing will fundamentally change. But <laughs> basically, you know, recommitting themselves not only to the police domestically, but recommitting themselves to an international police, right, the military. What are your thoughts on on that? I mean, you know, just considering that so many people thought that Biden was the lesser of two evils. And now, like, not only are we fighting against housing insecurity, but we're also fighting against war and and fighting against mass incarceration still. Yeah. So, like, just what are your reflections kind of on the Biden administration thus far in that uh, regard? I mean, I to be honest with you, I don't have many thoughts on the Biden administration. I do. I would say that I do agree with the uh, analysis and the assessment that that between Trump and Biden, Biden is the lesser of two evils. I think that is pretty clear and true. Uh, but even even if you think that analysis is true, you still are admitting that Biden is evil. Uh, so I just want to you know make that clear that saying that he's the lesser of two evils from an, a, a, an absolute lunatic and an actual fascist is really not much of a compliment. You know, saying that Mussolini is not as bad as Hitler is really not uh, some great compliment. So um, uh, I'm really thinking about what are the potentials for this moment for movement building? What are the potentials for this moment for organizing? Where are the fissures in society that we need to be looking at so that we can build campaigns to expand our rights, not just spend all of our time uh, uh, trying to protect the the uh, a certain set of rights that we've had all the time. I think the mantra of the of movements in, in this country have so long been around resistance. And just to be clear, resistance during a time of resistance uh, is incredibly brave. There was a time when uh, uh, resisting, uh, uh, getting beaten uh, multiple times a day was, was the bravest thing you could do. There was a time when registering to vote was fatal. So I, I'm not saying this is a way of downing the idea of resistance. Resistance during a time where resistance is the only thing you can do is incredibly brave. However, we can't make a new future just by resistance. So resistance is fighting against encroachments on your own territory. So if someone comes and they uh, uh, and they try to rob you and they try to steal your wallet or your purse uh, and you affect successfully resist, you successfully fight them off. What you have at the end of that process is your own wallet or your own purse. So like successful resistance against Donald Trump is Joe Biden. That is successful resistance. We don't want to just resist. We want to advance. We need to build a movement that doesn't just resist against further encroachments on our rights. We need a movement that advances our rights, that expands the number of rights that we have and expands the range of those rights, not just resist attempts to that. So we can't just resist uh, evictions by uh, uh, demanding a, a temporary halt to them, a moratorium, we must instead build a movement that would expand the human right to, uh, uh, or assert the human right to housing and get housing for, uh, for for everyone. That's the type of movement we need to build. And we can't build that entire, of course, we have to, to, to consider who is it who's in power and uh, what are their particular circumstances? But we can't uh, build that movement entirely based on who is uh, uh, who's in power. We have to build a movement based on what we want, what our vision is for the future, and what our objectives are, and the strategy that we're going to deploy in order to achieve those objectives in order to realize that vision. We need to build movements now that shift power from where they are now to Biden and whoever else uh, has power, and shift them directly to the hands of working class African communities, particularly women, particularly LGBTQ folks. Mm. And what would your advice be as a seasoned organizer to those who are, you know, struggling forward 
um, and struggling toward Black liberation right now. But those who are going to be, as we move into the fall, working to protect people not only from police violence, but also from evictions. Like, how can they be proactive? I think uh, there's a couple of things that we, we have to do. One is to engage in rigorous study, rigorous study of what movements are, rigorous study of analysis, uh, of what the problems uh, that we're facing actually are. Is the problem a housing problem or is the problem a land problem? Because the solutions to the two are very different. If the problem is just a housing problem, then the solution is build more housing. If the solution is a land problem, then the solution is to decommodify land. So that's an entirely different movement that you'd be building there. But we need to engage in rigorous group study on what our, our problems actually are. This is leadership development. This is political education on the, on the mass level. Uh, and I think one of the big problems that we have right now in terms of building movement is that we actually do not have enough agreement on what the problem, uh, what the problems are that we're facing, and we don't have enough uh, agreement on how to solve those problems, what the solutions to those problems are. I think we need to assert our vision of, of how we solve those problems. The second thing that we need to do is engage in on the ground organizing. We need to be building movements that are centered on uh, people, on human beings, not just on ideas, although the ideas must also be very strong. It has to be a combination of the two. It's not one or the uh, uh, one or the other. And that means we need to organize people. And organizing is just getting a group of people to agree on objectives, a plan to achieve those objectives, and how decisions are made in order to implement the plan in order to achieve those objectives, right? So we need to be organizing uh, our communities. We need to do group work. If you have three or four people and you're under the impression that you can liberate the entire uh, uh, black community, uh, you should stop what you're doing, reassess and go back and organize black people. We need to get away from the small vanguard group, although we do need vanguards, we need to get away from that and we need to move more towards the model of mass organization because that's how we're actually gonna advance it. So I think the number one is study and number two is to organize, is to get people to uh, get a mass group to agree on on objectives and a plan to achieve those objectives. That's what we need to be doing right now. Yeah, and that's something Jaleel Montekin kind of says, like um, in his book, We Are Our Own Liberators, talking about like moving away from, like you were saying, that vanguard idea, like solely that vanguard idea and kind of just, uh, you know, stopping the reactionary uh, aspect, stopping the, just because there's an issue, you and your three group of friends are going to be the one to save it. You know what I'm saying? Um, like taking the time to have that, like you said, intentional study, intentional development of values. Um, I think that's like really important moving forward and like just energy to collect, like I said, during Black August. Um, so thank you for sharing yeah. that. One of the questions that we like to ask our guests when they're on the show is, what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? So, Max, what is your privilege and how are you using that to continue to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? So I have two uh, main privileges uh, that I recognize. I'm sure that I have others. One is my maleness uh, and the other is my uh, relative privilege or wealth background. I don't have a lot of wealth, but I would pretty well educated, uh, et cetera. Um, so in my maleness, I think people uh, often think about uh, uh, black men as uh, targets of the state, which we, which we are, uh, but don't think about black men as uh, having privilege over and above black women and black queer folk. So uh, I do have that privilege. And again, I have the privilege of having, having had access to education and for long periods of time anyway, when I was 
uh, being raised by my parents, not having to worry about where my next meal was coming from or having housing security or food security, things like that. Uh, so I think those are both privileges. Uh, I try to use those uh, uh, privileges by um, introducing into the spaces that I'm able to get into uh, women and queer folk, bringing them into those uh, uh, spaces uh, where I feel like I have uh, access because of my privilege that they don't really have. Uh, so that would be uh, bringing them into physical spaces uh, where there's a disproportionate number of men or I'm invited and other people are, are not invited, uh, but also uh, sharing the access that I've had to education, sharing the access that I've had to uh, certain types of security. Thank you. Uh, this has been such a great interview um, and just getting to hear like the similarities between what's what's happening in Miami and what's happening in Richmond, what was happening in 2006 and what's still happening in 2021. It, it's really like yeah. important that we make those connections. So I really do thank you for taking the time um, to come and sit and speak with us. Uh, before I let you go, can you let us know where folks can follow you or keep up with your work and where can people purchase your book? Ah, so the, the best way to keep up with some of the work that uh, that I'm doing is through my organization, Pan-African Community Action, or PACA. Uh, you can go to the website, pacapower.org. That's P-A-C-A power.org. Uh, and then online on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter, it's PACA DMV. PACA D as in D.C., M as in uh, Maryland, V as in Virginia, uh, PACA DMV. Uh, so you can find that uh, or, or look up uh, Pan-African Community Action on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Uh, in terms of purchasing the book, the book is now published by AK Press. So go into the AK Press website and searching either for Max Remote or searching for Take Back the Land, uh, and you should be able to find the book. You can also find it in some other bookstores like uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon, things like that. But the best place to get it is probably from uh, AK Press. And we have another book coming out on community control over police. So for with Take Back the Land, we're fighting for the human right to housing and community control over land. Those were our two primary objectives. And with community control over police, we're fighting for community control uh, over, over uh, the apparatus uh, of the state that, that um, uh, is armed and that is supposed to protect us, but is actually protecting the working class. Yes, well, we will definitely keep our eyes locked on the shelf. Um, looking for that coming out because I know I definitely would love to pick up some pointers and hear the rest of y'all's analysis. Well, that is all for this week on Race Capital. Reminder that Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. If you like this show and want to support our work, remember to visit patreon.com slash race capital and subscribe. Become a patron of the show. As always, solidarity to those involved in the struggle. And thank you for listening.